The Bureau of the Fiscal Service and the Treasury Department is managing and measuring risk in a whole new way. Where once risk management was just a matter of the chief financial officer, now the Bureau's entire senior leadership cadre is involved. Nicole Puri is the Bureau's chief risk officer and the past president of the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management. She tells executive editor Jason Miller about how enterprise risk management has spread into a range of agency functions, even budgeting. We have a a specific forum where we talk about our investments and risk now comes up regularly. And it's not always focused on our top enterprise risks, but just that culture of thinking about risk and thinking ahead, right, instead of just being worried about what's going to happen today and tomorrow. I think we've seen a a large advancement in that. And I do attribute that to, you know, that top down thinking about risk and sort of prioritizing it and making sure that people know it's important. And I think that we've also seen our executives really start to hold people accountable, hold our folks accountable for the planning and execution piece. And that I I believe that's a cultural aspect to thinking about risk more. So we're asking people, hey, have you planned for risk? Have you thought about it? Have you thought about how you're going to handle certain things that, you know, might come up? And then lastly, sort of on the senior executive side, I would say it's it is a, it's starting to be a factor in how we allocate our funding. That's a slow process to go through, and I think it takes time to find the right way for each agency to really incorporate that concept to think about what, what, how does risk affect funding and how do we want it to work. Um, but we're definitely starting to see some some advancement there, and I think other agencies are as well. I've started to hear, you know, through the grapevine and so on that. Um, people are talking more about this and trying to figure it out really on a day-to-day basis. The other thing, just two, two, three other things um, that I would say that have helped the culture, helped to create this culture of risk management. We actually have a very strong focus on strategy in our agency. And I think that one of the reasons why this is so key to cultural advancement for risk is when you know where you're trying to go, it becomes easier to say, well, what obstacles can be in my path? Right. If you don't really know where you're trying to go or you don't have agreement on the in the agency, who knows what could get in your way because you don't really know where you're going. And so that clarity really helps to kind of zone in on risk and help people see why it's important. Next is education and collaboration. We do a lot. We do leadership training on enterprise risk management for all our new managers and above. My team speaks frequently to other teams internally. Right now, I'm actually in the middle of some brainstorming sessions with our chief counsel's office, right, on how they can contribute to managing enterprise risks, given their unique perspective and and access in the organization. And I think that's the kind of great advancement. People see, wow, there's value in this. I want to spend some time to, you know, educate my people. And then lastly, I would say is, interestingly enough, being data-driven. That's also something that's really important in fiscal service right now, and I think just in general where government is headed. And so what we're trying to do is think ahead about risk. We want to be warned ahead of time if something's going the wrong direction or, or something that we don't, you know, we feel like we need to take action on it before it gets out of hand. And I think that's a culture shift, right? We're used to kind of being, I think across government, probably used to being more just dealing with things as they come up rather than having the time to think through them ahead of time. So this shift in thinking and let's use data to try to figure out, you know, where our our risks are and where we should try to reduce our risk, um, you know, before it happens. Uh, I think that that's been, that's been something that has been a good advancement. And it also is helping us in the risk office because we can really start to measure the progress in managing risks. 
So we can say, you know, hey, we were trying to get this risk down a level. Are we being successful or not? And monitoring, you know, the data and looking at what the data tells us and our metrics to see if we've made progress there. So all of those things contribute to improving the culture and just people thinking about it more day to day in terms of how it affects their work. I just spoke with someone at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. They actually just came up with an enterprise risk kind of management policy do you have any agency-wide or, or bureau-wide policy that's kind of driving these conversations? So we have an enterprise risk management framework that we work on internally. There's a governance structure associated with that. So you know we have a, a senior executive level risk committee that makes these decisions. And they really, they rely on other governance structures that we have set up within the agency to filter risk up to them and then they review and you know make those decisions so it result we meet monthly and so that really i think it allows a good amount of opportunity to kind of talk through you know what's new what's going on are we focused on the right things um, and things like that so we don't we don't necessarily have a policy for what gets added as an enterprise risk or you know what gets considered but we do have like a framework that governs how we look at it and sort of certain things have to be at a certain level before they'll get up to that conversation. There's a lot of different ways to understand risk and, and apply it and make sure that it's being talked about at the right levels. And and I think that's the kind of the follow-up from that is you have this framework and, and it starts at the lower levels. Is that been, because you mentioned the education side of it, you mentioned this idea of, of strategy how have those key pieces helped drive this discussion in a different way? You know, I think in our case, it has been a focus more on thinking about risk top down. The agency fiscal services was is and you know has been continues to be very good at managing operational risk day to day. You know, we are an operational agency. A lot of what we do is you know getting payments out daily and running auctions and things like that. So. Being operational in nature, we're, we're pretty good at managing our operational risks. But we have shifted, I think, in the last few years to being, uh, to having longer term strategies that we want to accomplish. And so that has forced more of a top down approach to risk. And, you know, when I came in a few years ago, that was, that was my focus. So I think now what we have is a top down and a bottom up. And those are starting to meet where people understand, okay, you know, I have risks in my day-to-day -day work that I need to manage, but then there's also these longer-term, bigger risks across the enterprise that we're starting to coalesce on what they are and how to deal with them. Um, and so I think just that process has really probably opened some eyes and just, you know, we keep it in front of people. We, you know, make sure to go out and talk to our folks, our internal teams, and sort of keep it in front of them and give them examples, right? We, at Fiscal Service, we've made a, a large effort to not talk about risk in a sort of abstract way, but to really start to, you know, to give people examples of how it filters through their work every day. And um, we don't necessarily need to use risk language. We can use the language of how we get things done, you know, the work that we're doing, and just point out how risk impacts. And so, you know, all of those things have helped. It's it's always a multi-layered approach. It's never, a, you know, one thing kind of goes all the way to solve, you know, to accomplish something you're trying to accomplish. When you talk about risk in non-abstract ways, what would that look like? Maybe can you give me an example of? Well, I can give you an example, which I think is, you know, a very common 
example in government, and we see this in probably most agencies of you know human capital risk. Over the last couple of years, the process of having focused discussions on risk and on thinking about causes as well as impacts, I think, as, you know, I know I have an identified risk here, and how does that flow through over time? How does it impact different parts of the organization, things like that? We've had more focused discussions on that. And so the more focused discussions mean people are thinking about it more, they're paying more attention to it, they're thinking about it in their day-to-day -day work. And so it has, I think, really helped to kind of focus in on like, well, where are our risks? And I don't, you know, that's not just happening in the in the risk committee meetings, that's happening in multiple meetings across the agency. But knowing that, you know, in the back of their minds, knowing that it's an enterprise risk helps to focus the conversation. Nicole Puri is Chief Risk Officer at the Treasury Department's Bureau of the Fiscal Service and a past president of the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pre um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did 
you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups, you might get this experience. But really, where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
And you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.